Welcome to Escape the Earth. We are a sci-fi and fantasy podcast broadcasting from an undisclosed location within the San Antonio Public Library. We are supported by the library and by the San Antonio Public Library Foundation. So a big shout out to them. I'm Mary Elizabeth and my other crew members today are Alyssa. Hi, everybody. And Tim. Cheers. Today, we are going to be talking about Nettie Okorafor's Who Fears Death? Before we get into that, though, we just want to warn everyone about a couple of things. First, there will be spoilers. We go into this assuming you have read the book, and so we aren't going to tiptoe around anything. If you haven't read the book, hit the pause button. Go read it and come back to us. Part of our goal is to encourage people to read the books. Second, this is geared towards adults. We're not potty mouths or anything, but sometimes the subject matter will not be for youngling ears. Thank you, Mary. Nettie Okorafor. Her works include Who Fears Death? It's in development with HBO to become a TV series. The Binti Novella Trilogy, optioned and in development with Media Res. The Book of Phoenix. The Insibidi script series. I probably messed that up. And Lagoon. She's the winner of Hugo Nebula World Fantasy Locus Lodestar Awards. And her debut novel, Zara, the Windseeker, won the prestigious Wol Soyinka Prize for Literature. Nettie has also written an African futurist comic series, LaGuardia, winner of the Hugo and the Eisner Award, comics for Marvel, including The Black Panther, Long Live the King, and Wakanda Forever, featuring Dora Milaje, and the Shuri series, and her short memoir, Broken Places and Outer Spaces. Nettie holds a PhD in literature and two MAs in journalism and literature. She lives with her daughter and family in Phoenix, Arizona. And I also understand that she has two or three hairless cats that look like little kitty aliens. This all comes from her website, Nettie.com. There are two cats, Neptune and Periwinkle. Only one of them is hairless. (laughs) They're adorable. Are you given summary? You bet. You already? <laughs> oh yes. Sorry. You were you were waiting for more cat comments. Just in case. Go cats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tensions in this book center around two warring tribes, the darker skinned Okiki and the lighter skinned Nuru. According to the Great Book, the Okiki were created by the goddess Ani during the night. As the goddess slept, the Okiki created a technologically advanced society, which eventually self-destructed. When Ani awoke and saw the devastation the Okiki had wrought, she punished them by making them slaves to the Nuru. Enter Onyasanwu. With her light eyes, freckles, and skin the color of sand, Onyasanwu is Iwu, a child of rape, born to an Okiki mother brutally violated by a Nuru sorcerer. Considered an abomination among the Okiki, Onyasanwu is expected to be as violent as the act that created her. Despite the oppression heaped upon her for what she is, Onyasanwu is powerful. She is both a sorceress and a shapeshifter. 
Her power and her anger frighten the people of Dwahir. On the cusp of being cast out, she leaves with a group of companions, heading west to seek revenge against her father and fulfill her destiny to end the genocide of the Okiki and rewrite the great book. Well, one thing I want to say real quick is I read a I read a statement from Nettie Okorafor where she accuses Stephen King of using this magical Negro trope in a lot of his works. But then when I read Nettie Okorafor's works, it's all about magical Negroes. Okay, so, so that trope is um, when you use a person of color as other than the rest of the characters in the book, right? right? So this person is different other and part of that othering is that they have magic right right that's not what's happening in this book (laughs) no there is how teasing us (laughs) there is however the flip side of the magical negro and that there's the magical caucasian in so in the character of sola Ah, oh yeah ah. and i yeah i had a hard time like who sola is i wonder because i know that there is a prequel that i don't know who sola is and i was like is sola a white person um like keeps talking about how pale his skin is well sola she describes him she, he sounds kind of like emperor palpatine yeah he's very he's gotta yeah, be a he's white always person. got the cowl over the top of his head he's like i don't know very pale <laughs> But with perfect teeth. I guess Palpatine didn't really have perfect teeth. (laughs) Gross teeth. But I am just kidding about the magic Negro thing. I just just thought it would be a fun thing to to kind of jaw about. But don't hate me, Nettie Okorafor. I was just kidding. But you do start bringing up the tropes, which I I feel like what she does with fantasy tropes in this book is really interesting. That was part of what intrigued me about it. It feels like a standard fantasy book in a way in that it has all of the elements, right? You've got a chosen one. You've got companions that go out on the quest and various things happen to the companions. You've got, um, you know, this sacrificial um, people that are like sacrificing themselves for the greater good or sacrificing mm-hmm. themselves for the hero. There's so much traditional tropes, but with a spin on yeah. them, especially like a gender, a gender, gender flip, spin. or like yeah. we just saw with the magical Caucasian, a racial flip. <laughs> <laughs> and I did, I get different vibes from it at different times. Mm-hmm. I've only read, this is only the second Nidia Cora for I've read. I read remote control. Mm-hmm. which I really liked and I felt like the language in remote control was so beautiful and it was just really well written. I found this one to be a bit more terse and I'm not sure what the what the right word it's it's a rougher work but all I the think- way around because the themes involved are are very rough and like we were talking about the Iwu a child of rape expected to be as violent as the act that created them. I do see that a little bit in Onya Songwu. I also wonder if some of, because the most of the book is from, as you find out at the end, Onya's perspective, like she's giving an interview and she's a very terse to the point person or character in the book so i wonder if maybe that has something to do because you're hearing the author's take on if onya was giving an, an interview 
if you if you understand what I'm saying. Like, um, because I mean, not like, like she's formally sitting down because like she's she's in a gel cell. <laughs> she's in a gel cell, ready for what she's seen coming since she's come into her power that her death. So she's very I, Onya is very terse, matter of fact, to the point. And I wonder if that maybe that's what you're picking up on, because maybe Ned Elkorfor can just write in these different perspectives and points of use. Right. Yeah, I get different feelings from it at different times. It's kind of at some points it feels kind of like a Lord of the Rings tale, like you have this giant red eye of Sauron that is is watching from afar that is represented by Daib, who is Onyasonwu's bio dad. And, and you know, she goes on this quest with her companions who sort of fall by the way. Two of them die brutally trying to protect her. Really, three of them, right? And then at other times, it's unlike anything that I've read previously. And it does pull in a lot of very hard topics. So, Today, we do have that trigger warning because there are a lot of things in this book. Genocide, genital mutilation for for females. But it does talk a lot about the power balance between men and women. And the struggles that, that in the, the switch of the balance, because... Onya Sonu is a female and a sorcerer, and that hasn't been something that anybody expected. So when even Emwita, her 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 love, her soulmate, he gets jealous <laughs> of the power that she has. So yeah, that that this she struggles with it throughout the whole book. That she has these powers and and what she's gonna do with them and the rage and revenge she feels often and she uses her powers for. <laughs> often justifiably so the relationship between Amwita and Onyasan who is is so interesting to me and I think it's another one of those areas where the trope gets flipped in terms of gender he's the healer and and so often (laughs) like the classic D&D party even when you play MMOs even modern day like a lot of women will play the healer I feel like that's like that's a traditional female area and he brings it to light like you were mentioning Rails. if there's several points in the book where he's like he's kind of pouty and he's like I was supposed to be the sorcerer <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, and and it's interesting because you know according to the like traditional fantasy that's more what you would expect in in the way that the genre has gone up into more modern day is that it's you know the woman is usually in this role patching up the hero and here it is multiple times when Amwita is patching up Aonya Sanwu after she's expended herself magically or tried to travel across distances. Another thing that I find interesting in this in this book is also this idea of fate or being predestined to to something. That concept of the male and the female comes in to play there because the sorcerers don't want a teacher because they think that or they say that the 
the females cannot control their emotions and that, um, you know, if they're pregnant or having their monthlies, as they say, that it can create dangerous situations. And even the prophecy that says that plays such a big part in the book that an Iwu will come and rewrite the great book. They, they say it's an Iwu man, but Sola and Arrow figure out, I really think it's more Sola, right? Who, who says, no, it's an Iwu female that Rana made a mistake but Rana got one thing right. You are tall. From that point, she knows. But there are also things, this idea of fate too, like the idea that someone has to ask for their child or their offspring to become a sorcerer. I didn't... Uh, Oh, right. I didn't realize the significance of that at the beginning. Like, her mom put all of her power into that last really loud spoken cry. And that that was what it was for, was to make Onyasanwu a tool of revenge against her biological father, who had just brutally raped her. Towards the end, like, Onyasanwu and Mwita are talking... And she tells him that in order for someone to become a sorcerer or a sorceress, in order to pass initiation, someone has to ask it for you. And so for her, it was her mother. And when Emwita and her are talking, it's revealed that Onya's mother may become Arrow's new pupil. Someone had, she asked who, well, who asked for her to take this on? And he says, probably her father. But just the idea, too, like the initiation for them to become sorcerer, and the reason that's part of the reason it's called Who Fears Death, is that they have to go forward in time and witness their own demise. And so she carries that around with her throughout the story knowing how she's going to die and it plays it plays a big role it feels so familiar this doesn't feel like the only book or story that's done that and i can't put my finger on the other stories that it comes from i'm sure there are a lot of religious stories where where it plays a part what was the story that she told near the end that she said that she hated and she hated the story even more after what happened to Binta. Yeah. The story of Zubir and Tia, right? Where he's, he's a bastard of a chief and he can run really fast and he's special and she's really ordinary, but beautiful. And she takes the bullets for him. Right. And she goes, un- goes unrecognized. She's like, an- she's an unsung hero. And, and it, it talks about there's an expectation of sacrifice from a woman. Right. And that's, that kind of sums up everything. That sums up patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I, but I mean, the, the story is as well. Although, you know, Mwita, can it be said, Mwita does not sacrifice as well. Absolutely. I was going to say, who's Tia in this story for you? It, that That's exactly who I think it is. But Amwita? Mm-hmm. I would say it's also Luyu. It's also Binta. It's probably also Onyasanwu in a way. Everybody's sacrificing themselves. Not always necessarily for a man. Well, maybe not. I mean, Anya Sanwu is not sacrificing herself for a man. She's sacrificing herself to rewrite the great book. But in a way, is it really a sacrifice? Because she doesn't really die. I mean, she's like, there's that, there's the the Christ-like kind of deal, right? Where you're going, resurrection. Like the whole book is full of resurrection too. Yeah. So that brings up another point. Is it really a sacrifice if you can just undo it? Would it resonate more if it was if there was more permanency to it? I don't know. That's a tough question. That's why you let me be a part of this so that I can ask the tough questions. <laughs> it's definitely more satisfying for the reader in a in sense of it comes out to a more like happy ending. It's not like everybody dies, boom. It is like, okay, well, everybody died, but everybody came back. They imply that it's the implied, like, mm, Amwita's going to be there in the green spaces waiting for me. And she knows that it's true. And she changes into a fire dragon and she flies off. She knows she's going to find him and she's still pregnant with their baby. And, you know, that's that's the happy ending. The marriage, the baby. Her Her friends are probably there, too. I I complain about uh, about this with with writers a lot though. Like sometimes writers fall too in love with their characters. To me, Frodo should have died. Frodo should have died again and again. I was just waiting for Samwise Gamgee to be the one who was the hero of that story. Kill him. I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's a different type of story. It's a story of redemption, and you had to have somebody. You he had to be redeemed at the end in order to have that redemption. Also, he was the the Christ like figure of the story. So, (laughs) um, I was thinking about your question of like. If everybody survives in the end, but everybody doesn't survive. She had like everybody had to die, including herself, in order to get that happy ending, the possible happy ending of the book rewrite. And she knew she didn't know there was going to be a happy ending. She only ever saw her death, but she still chose to walk to that death. So maybe it's more of a happy ending for the reader because she's still her friends are still dead <laughs> and there's only the possibility of maybe he's waiting in that green area for her well and so is the is the green area a literal place or is it more of like a right is it afterlife, a spiritual place an is afterlife it... concept right she is taken there by her mother and that uh, 
other form in the spiritual sense. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's an actual real place. It could be, it could be, and it also could not be. <laughs> it also could be the spiritual place of refuge, maybe for her and Amwita and their child to meet and then move on again to come back in some way, maybe as either reincarnation, reincarnated or maybe as themselves. That's still kind of like an ethereal thought that the, this like nebulous idea of will they come back? How will they come back? I thought the green place was a real place. I thought that they lived in the desert. I mean, they walk around on their feet. They ride a camel. They don't, transportation is super limited in this post-apocalyptic future. I just assumed they'd never seen far away from the desert that they lived in and that there are still green places in the world. Yeah, I, I think it can totally be an actual place. I'm just not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. And from the book doesn't leave me certain of that for myself. So I just want to return to this idea of the the role of the women in the book. Because when Onya wants to get trained by Arrow, and he just keeps refusing her, she goes, well, let, let me back up. So first we have this idea of her mother sacrificing her voice to ask for her to be made into a sorcerer. And, and her mother doing everything she can to protect her and keep her alive. I mean, that's what mothers generally are supposed to do with their young. But but in this case, it's an extreme because they hide in the desert and live on their live on their own away from society. And then she finally realizes she has to bring her into contact with other people because they need things. And then Onya has no friends in this society because she's Iwu and there's a, um, a a prejudice against Iwu people. But then she undergoes this 11th, 11th year rite that creates sort of her core group of friends. Like, those girls are bonded by having this Tradition, I call it tradition, but I mean, like, this is where the genital mutilation occurs, and this act binds these girls together. And then the women who are present at that at that ritual also sort of become mother finger, figures to her as well. Uh, as she tries to get Arrow to teach her, and he will not, she goes to each one of the ladies there in turn and asks them to use their influence on Arrow. What do you think about the role of the of those particular women? Well, I think there's definitely a bond that forms with the, especially with the young girls in that ceremony. And I think it's uh, born of the revelation of secrets 
you know, you have what's going on with Binta and her father that gets revealed. And also um, they talk about like their sexual experience. So things that don't always get talked about are revealed in this sacred rite in the middle of the night with these older women. Um, and then you have Onyesan Wu who goes alu, right? She steps into the spirit world a little bit and she becomes translucent and all the girls see that. So there's this, I think part of what bonds them together is that there's so many shared secrets that happen in that space, but there is also a sense of women's power. Even in patriarchal society, women do have power and they have, they, they find ways to uh, work within the system. And I think this is the sense the older women in particular, they're working, working within the system to do what they can. Like they talk about now that uh, Binta has reached her 11th year right and confessed about like the sexual abuse that's going on with her father, they can actually do something about it. So they gain some power there. And then, yes, you talk about the influence that like the Ada has with Arrow. And then she does go to Nana the Wise or Onyasanwu goes to Nana the Wise later at the house of Osugbu and says, um, can you help me get some training on this ability that I have? And and I do think that they are able to wield some influence, but it is the limited influence available to women in patriarchy. So we were talking about the the role of not only like Luyu, Didi, and Binta, but also Nana the Wise and the Ada, who we discover later is Arrow's wife. It's a, it's a not so secret secret, <laughs> like one of those village secret that most everybody knows. I think they just have a different life. They have a non-traditional marriage. I don't think it's a secret. <laughs> I think it's, it's Onya Sanwu learns of it and it's like, oh, and the girls learn of it because they didn't know it. But she's like, yeah, uh, the people who were there and witnessed it, they all knew. Right. <laughs> right. I think it's a secret. Uh... It's just the kids catching on now. <laughs> sort of like when you watch Bugs Bunny uh, cartoons when you're young and they're funny, but when you watch them when you're older, they're funny for a different reason. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so the other thing that I want to talk about is that scene where Binta dies. It happens um, so quick, it seems like. It was shocking. So all throughout throughout her life, Onya and Wita have had to deal with this idea that Iwu are cursed people. And it seems like in Jwair, because they're so far east away from the troubles, that maybe that is not as prominent they eventually seem to get some acceptance there. Uh, but as they move back towards the West, it becomes a much bigger deal. And they're trying to avoid towns because they don't want Daib to know they're coming. They don't want to encounter people or run into run into trouble. And in one of the towns that they go to, they actually encounter the Ada's children. And um, 
Onya tries to heal one of the Ada's children, and she tells that child in the process tells her, I don't want to be healed. I didn't ask you to heal me. She wants to die. She she's not a child at the time, though. No, <laughs> she, no, she's not a child. <laughs> they are adults. I'm sorry. That can be misleading. The Ada's adult children, and and one of them is very sick, and the uh, they're twins, and twins are considered sacred and vital to the town. Uh, they're supposed to be like good luck, and one of the twins is sick, and she goes to try and heal her at the behest of the other twin, and when they make this spiritual connection, the spirit of the ill twin tells Onya that she does not want to be healed. She wants to be released. And so Onya kills her, and then the other twin can't understand why. Well, I don't think she kills her. I think she can't keep her. I think that's more of what happened there. Uh, like she can't convince her to stay. She she just wants to go, so she goes because she's torn up about it. She's like she wouldn't let me save her. Well, she wasn't. She did feel like there was no choice. She said that she could have done it, but she didn't feel like she had a choice. Right, right. She could have done it, but the daughter wasn't going to let her herself be saved. Yeah, the daughter had a choice to not be saved. In other words, she chose, she wanted to die. And and so that I'm wondering, like, what is the significance of that scene for you guys? I think it's it was a good scene showing that she's not all powerful where she can't just keep everybody. Everybody had a choice in how, well, I would think that everybody had a choice that, that Onya Sawa, even though she knew her death, she walked towards that death. She, there were times that she wanted to not, could she have run away from that? I don't know. But the, uh, but the, the daughter, she chose her fate. She chose her death. That was how she wanted to, to, she didn't want to live anymore because she was in so much pain and she was done she was tired her soul was tired so that was significant in that you have to be able to let go and you have to be able to to let people go when they want to go at first the other twin uh doesn't understand but he does he does come to accept it later on right right and the interesting thing about them was like they never they didn't know that they still had a living bio mother um they had been raised by an aunt and uncle and so i think at the end of that scene he was going to go to seek out his his biological mother right also because he kind of had to skedaddle because it's bad like to have just one twin (laughs) and then the next village that they encounter is the one where binta dies that is brought about by a priest it's the village priest who screams iwu when he sees them and then binta gets like two words out and then she's ripped to shreds 
they throw a brick at her head. Yeah, it, like immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, she stands up for she stands up for Onya Sanwu, and that's when they throw the brick at her head. It is a really brutal scene, and Onya Sanwu, her response to Vinta being killed is to strike everyone in the town blind. Do you think that was an appropriate punishment? No. I mean, no. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, and also, all of the girls took part in a ritual of their village where they had female genital mutilation, basically. And they, and at this point in time, Onya Sanwu was able to, to heal them all. And one of her thoughts is the, this beautiful Binta never got to be with somebody who loved her. She loved back. And so she mourned, she mourned that for her friend also. They, and the, like, and they had been so much infighting also. Like the girls had, were starting to get all angry with each other. They finally were able to find peace with each other. And then, and then Binta's taken from them. It was so it was so tragic. There's so much drama. There's so much infighting in the companions. And that's another way that this story reminds me of the Lord of the Rings. They're really just trying to come to terms with like being out of their village, what it's like in the bigger, larger world, what it's like to be adults because they're only maybe like 20 years old. And I, I feel like it feels it feels appropriate. Like, it kind of it, it felt like the Deathly Hallows to me in that in that context too. Like because remember when they when they're kind of on the run, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and Ron just has this meltdown. Like, and Harry's like, "What? You thought you'd be home for Christmas? It, it's it doesn't work that way." Absolutely, uh, yeah. Uh, and you get that sort of with Fanansi and Didi. They're both like, well, you know, we didn't sign up with for this. Well, yes, you did. It's kind of romantic when you're uh, young and you're like, oh, we're going on an adventure. And then the reality of what it's like sets in and where they're really going, what they're really doing. And, you know, some people are, are on board with it and some people really aren't. And I think Lu Yu is one of the most interesting characters in her her transformation and her portrayal of womanhood because it's so it's it breaks the tropes again she's a character that really breaks the tropes she's whoever she wants to be sexually without any concern for pregnancy consequence and and her fierce loyalty also to Onya Sanwu and I think she was the biggest surprise character too, because at the beginning I would not have expected Lu Yu to be that person. I would have expected Lu Yu to be the one who would, you know, like possibly even betray her. Um, I've got that same feeling too, but yeah, she totally she's the last one standing with her at the end. Not because Mwito didn't want to stand with her, but because you know she 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 could have run away at any point in time. She could, I kind of also thought maybe she's going to stay with the red people, but no, she, she stood with her to the, to the very end. 
Yeah, she liked the red people. That, that's another thing. So this is the second book that we've done where we have this concept of a moving village that was sort of magically protected. Because we had um, the Tade Thompson one that had a concept of a invisible or hidden village that was moving. So the red people were, were very interesting. What do you make of the masquerade attack that happened there? Oh, that was very like odd. And I, I thought there was going to be some, there maybe there's significance to it. And I just, there was a few, there's a few magical things about this book. And I'm just like, what, what was that? What happened? <laughs> like the, the peacock feather thing at the very end, but it's just like, yeah, the, it just brought a little bit of levity. The whole, that whole time with the red people was just wonderful. Uh, like the people were wonderful and like, socialist society that seems to work. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, but the masquerade. That masquerade was bizarre. <laughs> it was brutal. The the what? attack the attack on Onyasanwu was was brutal. Oh, that, oh yeah, but that I creature, the other one that just kind of threw pine needles on them, and they were like, "What." <laughs> and they start yeah. breaking down laughing because they're like it was so weird but it made she's sick she's yeah she's sick oh, and you're poisoned right. you're right it does get a okay there was something going on i don't know why i just connected that from so hard i think i was you're right you're right <laughs> yeah and the masquerade is very interesting it reminded me of um like characters from hayao miyazaki films like spirited away or my neighbor Totoro, like some kind of a spirit from the wilderness. And you're not quite sure whether it's benign or not benign, or what it's going to do to you. It's right, right. All kinds you know, of... it, did, it did, there was that, that poison, but it brought her greater power once she recovered from that. Once Amwita healed her, like he does. Yeah. Yeah, like he does all the time. <laughs> it wasn't Emwita. It was. Uh, it was. It wasn't Ting. It was. It was Zani. Right. She went. She was sick. She went on the pilgrimage with the women to to do the prayer to Ani, and Ani disassembled and reassembled her, yeah. and she came back stronger than ever. And strong. that was when she felt confident to go attack. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> I wanted to tell it. No, what are you doing? <laughs> Stick with the plan. <laughs> well, because very obviously, like you've been sent with this entourage for a reason, and if you believe in in fate, it can't be just you who does it. If it were that simple, there would be no no story. <laughs> um, right, right. But of course, the characters don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> they're just living their lives <laughs> but yeah yeah it was just this was it was just such a it's such a good book <laughs> Nadia Korva really does just great storytelling <laughs> I do like it I like remote control just a little bit better because I find the the description and the use of language in there a bit more poetic and so that aspect of it appeals to me but uh, and this one 
doesn't have quite as much of the sci-fi feel as remote control. This is more of fantasy. There is just like very few hints of technology in there. Like, you know, her dad's blacksmith shop is right next to a a refurbished computer store. Yeah, it Um, all seems to be after technology. Right. And um, so that that could be a whole nother set of discussions. Like, what do we think has happened in this world? Is it right? Yeah, some kind of religious up, uprising? But yeah, you know, in one of the villages, Luyu buys like a Kindle version of the Great Book that also right. has yeah. mapping technology mm-hmm. built into it. That scene where they're in the cave and there's all of the old computers that they find. And then there's those spiders. At some point, I was wondering if the spiders were like nanotechnology that have just stuck around somehow. But we'll never know. <laughs> I thought it was revealed that it was the work of Daib, that it was sorcery. I don't know if it's ever, I don't know if it's a certain thing because it's the it's these two who come upon it later on that are speculating. So it, you know, it's Onya and Muita kind of figuring out, trying to figure out if it was him, but I don't think it's ever for certain. It definitely leaves you with a, with a lot of stuff to think about. I mean, I, th- there is a lot to this. So, um, but I think the the main thing you can take away is that uh, this is totally a girl power book. <laughs> lots of strong female characters. Very lots of female so. characters doing things that female characters don't traditionally do in a lot of fantasy yeah. stories, which yeah, is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, love yeah. that part of it. Yeah. But there's also the erasure of slavery too right. you, you have all of the the racial themes in this book as well genocide but oh, yeah. just the whole idea of you know a character being able to rewrite the book on slavery mm-hmm. i mean that's intense mind-blowing awesome so who would you recommend it to everybody <laughs> <laughs> I guess everybody who really likes fantasy, high fantasy, the girl, like you said, girl power. <laughs> People who want something different than the usual sci- the fantasy that they've been reading. Anybody who wants to read Afrofuturism, this is a great book in the in that genre, subgenre. Tim, what about you? What about you? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it is a fantastic book. And I have to get a feel for whoever for whoever I'm talking to at the time, but but generally, you know, if you if you it has so many of those traditional fantasy uh tropes as we talked about that you know, I could see it appealing to someone who likes Lord of the Rings or something if, if you want, like, a different take on it. Because it, it 
definitely has a lot of those vibes, but with the Afrofuturism take on it. So I don't know. It just it just depends. I mean, I have to talk to people. You've also got to be able to handle the violence. Yeah. Because yeah. it's pretty gritty. Yeah. So you have to be willing to wade through like rape, female genital mutilation, Genocide. sex abuse. Yeah. It, slavery. It's heavy. It's heavy topics. But treated with treated redemptively and you know written by somebody who knows what they're talking about it's not someone from outside of a culture exoticizing another culture which we've seen historically in fantasy yeah there are two two characters who are without redemption in this book what is daib the second one is ami's mom's first husband right yeah yeah wait didn't he just get killed? No, wait, no. He rejected her. He he was alive. He was alive, and he. Who are you talking her. about? Ani. Ani's the goddess. I'm lost. Uh, no, 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 I'm Onye. Onye. Onye's mom's first first husband. Oh, the coward. Yes, the coward. Who I hid? That, you know, yeah. You can kind of say it. he's the coward. Daib is the villain, and they don't deserve redemption. He hid when the Nuru came, and then he sees his wife, who's just been brutally raped, and he's like, you're unclean. Get away from me. Right. And he starts having, like, this pity party for himself. Um, Beyond redemption. I feel like he's a product of his male privilege. That doesn't really exist, does it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding, guys. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or other episodes we've done, please remember to rate or click the heart button wherever you listen to your podcast. You can view our book list, reviews, and suggested reads at guides.mysapple.org forward slash ETE and that's our Escape the Earth Lib Guide which is curated by Miss Alyssa here and uh, you can write us with stories, suggestions, random thoughts or interesting sci-fi and geek culture information at sapl.escapetheearth at gmail.com And join us next month for a discussion of Jade City by Fonda Lee. Thanks, everybody. See you then. Bye. Thank you. Escape the Escape the